Welcome to the inaugural event of this year's University Colloquium Series, and we're back in person, which is great, even if we're behind masks. Um, we also have some people uh, who are joining us via live streaming, so greetings to all of you as well. Thanks for joining us, however, however you're connecting today. Um, our speaker today is Dr. Matt Siderhurst from our chemistry department. Uh, Matt does the chemistry of bugs. I do. And he usually has interesting stuff to talk about, so I'm looking <laughs> forward to hearing his talk today. Matt did his PhD in entomology at Colorado State University, and he's been on the faculty here at EMU since 2006, so you've racked up 15 now. I did last year, yep. Congratulations. Uh, Matt has a long list of publications, about as long as my arm, and uh, the list of his grants is just about as long. Uh, so he's been a very productive scholar as well as a teacher here at EMU. And one of the things I like best about Matt's research and scholarship is the way he has incorporated students into both his grant-funded research and into his publication. Uh, he's a model for all of us. So Matt, looking forward to hearing what you have to say today. Uh, just so you know, we have a special dispensation from the health center director that as long as Matt stays 10 feet away from anybody in the audience, he can take off his mask. I'm glad to see that everyone's like left space for me here at the front. <laughs> well done, well done, got the message. Uh, that'll make it easier for the people who are uh, accessing via live streaming and we'll probably enjoy the talk better as well if, if we can see his face. So welcome, Matt. All right. All right, so as Fred said, um, I definitely do have um, students that have been uh, involved in the research, so I'll kind of hit some of them um, at the end. We have one in the house um, here tonight, so Theo, um, I feel like uh, he stole a little bit of my thunder last week by presenting some of this uh, research then. Uh, so I will actually hit some of the same things that, that he did, but also talk about some further things. Um, and uh, Theo also said that I wasn't letting him talk about the really fun stuff. Um, I'm actually stopping myself from talking about some of the fun things here. Um, so I'm giving you the first half. Uh, come back in November when I've got a pseudoscience seminar, I'm gonna talk about other things, um, part, of this, uh, part of this research. Um, so today um, I am going to be talking about um, uh, three projects that uh, were done over the course of mostly the sabbatical release time that I had um, and a little bit on either end of that. So um, uh, starting out around uh, Thanksgiving last year and then a little into, uh, into this summer. So just to give you an idea about what I'm gonna be talking about, uh, there, I'm gonna do an, a bit of an intro here. So I realize that we have some people that are, that are very into bugs. I see some of my entomology people here, um, uh, probably people who are not so much interested in that at all. So I'm gonna try to sell you on why you should be interested in ag um, in general, um, why maybe you should be interested in flies, um, before I get into talking about the, the three projects um, that, uh, uh, that I worked on. So those three projects then um, are, are uh, listed up there and I'll give you more details about them as we go, uh, go through. They all fit under um, the umbrella of, of a grant that actually is not my grant. Um, it is a colleague in Australia who we've been back and forth on each other's grants for about 10 years now. Um, I get something, he helps me. Um, he gets something, I help him. Um, and so this one is his big grant and I'm helping on it. Um, it is from the Australian Center for International um, Agricultural Research. Uh, and so that's one that I'll talk a little bit about. Mango is the focus of that. Um, I will talk about some things other than mango, but mango is our big focus there. And then finish up with kind of where we're, where we're headed next with some of these projects. Okay, so the first thing that I want to try to convince you of is that ag um, is something that you should maybe be interested in. And I feel like um, as, a, as a chemistry professor, as a biology professor, um, you know, I've got an interest in this field. This is actually not where I started out. Um, and if we look at, I think, you know, many of our students, when they come in each year, especially our biology students, and we say, how many of you are interested in being doctors, right? Pfft. 
you know, most of the hands go up. Um, and I think about, you know, kind of why is that, right? There are, some, there are some things to that that are like, it's prestigious. It's the kind of thing that you do if, you're, if, it, if you um, want to do the difficult, you know, project or the difficult major. Um, but part of it, I think, is also that, you know, many of our students are thinking about, like, getting out there and saving the world. Um, and it seems like, you know, if you want to save the world, and maybe you're a good Mennonite kid, the thing that you should do is go into medicine. Um, and that's actually where I started as well. Um, I definitely had that idea when I was in college, and like, I was going to go to med med school, medical school and save the world. Um, and uh, for me, one of the things that was, I, I think back on now, I'm not sure that it actually turned me around at that time, but it was, um, it put a seed in my head. I was at a conference at one of the, and I forget the name of it, it's like a Mennonite medical conference. We were, um, I went to school at Goshen, so this is my undergrad. Um, we trucked down to Atlanta, Georgia, and there was a guy there who was talking to us. He was a, he had been a missionary doctor in like somewhere in South America or Africa. He was like, that's the thing that I want to do, right? And so he gets up there and he's like, if you really want to help people, you should not go into medicine. You should go into development, you should go into politics, you should go into business, you should go into economics, right? If you work with communities and they can actually support themselves and have, you know, generate their own resources for their own hospitals, educate their own students so that they have their own medical staff, like that is the thing that really makes a difference. And boy, that stuck in my head. I was like, huh. Um, I really like that idea. And then, of course, I continued to be like, yeah, I'm going to go do medicine. And it took me quite a while to actually get that through my head um, uh, and come back to ag. So um, why ag, right? What are some of the reasons that, that I think ag is, is worth um, uh, you know, working on? So one of those things, right off the top, climate change, right? So if we think about um, the impact of humans on the environment, you have up here, I, from the, from, this is the US EPA, um, their number for the US is about um, a tenth of what we contribute in greenhouse gases comes from agriculture. And if you look around the world, it's, it's uh, about that for um, uh, worldwide as well. Somewhere between 10 and 15% of the, the greenhouse gases that we produce are from agriculture. There are some countries, this is interesting, Jim, New Zealand is way high. Um, they have, it's like 30% of their ga uh, greenhouse gases come from agriculture. I think it's from all the sheep. Um, I don't know, I, I have to like bug him about jokes, um, uh, sheep jokes from New Zealand. What's that? Uh, well, that's the other thing I was, if they're all already on, uh, they're, they're taking out other sources. But anyways, this is a big one, right? Um, so working on climate change, if you're interested in that, ag is one of the places, you know, where you can make um, an impact there. Conservation, I think this is a huge one. As a biologist, I want there to be natural places. Um, and the more and more that humans expand, um, and the, you know, the bigger our populations are, and particularly as we want to have more protein sources, right? as more people are able to buy meat, um, we continue to cut into wild areas. Um, and so if you're really interested in conservation and you want to see wild areas stay wild, we need to do ag differently, right? We need to get more out of the land that we're actually, that we're currently farming. We need to do it better. Um, we need to do more urban stuff, right? There are, there are lots of things that we can get at here. Um, health. Um, is another reason that you might be interested in ag. So particularly the one that's probably that jumps to my mind here is thinking about pesticide use. Um, so, you know, when I eat fruits and vegetables, um, I love the fact that in this country, um, pesticide use is relatively low. Um, uh, and this is a big thing what, that I do as an entomologist is try to control insects in a way that does not involve spraying more, um, more pesticides on them. Development, um, so this is one of those things that both taking technology uh, that has been developed in the West um, to developing countries, but also you know, listening to um, what are cultural practices um, in the developing world and, and how, can we, um, how can we use those to, to better do agriculture, um, I think is, a, is another way, place that you can um, uh, you think about studying ag. Rural communities, um, I think in this country there is you know, more and more urban-rural divide, and paying attention to agriculture is one of those ways that we can help um, uh, rural communities. And then finally, food security. Um, in this country, a lot of what I do is invasive insects. 
Um, and this is good job security for me because we keep getting more and more invasives that come in. Um, and then there's some industry that's like, ah, we're going to get torched by you know, the new beetle that is coming in and eating whatever. Um, and so if you like X food, right, um, if we're going to continue to be able to, to grow that, um, thinking about how we control insects, that's a, that's a big thing here. Um, developing world, the same thing. As we keep um, moving pests around, um, we don't want them to be taking out uh, parts of our food system. Okay. So flies, um, why should you care about fruit flies? Um, and here I need to interject something a little bit. This is, um, I, I realize, is, is, uh, uh, it doesn't look like uh, Jeff is in the house. Jeff and I have this back and forth on what we call fruit flies. And I realize that I lose this argument to him um, because his discipline has a whole lot more money than mine. Um, even though we're right, um, he wins um, because they, there's more money in genetics. Um, and so most of you, too, when you probably think of a fruit fly, you think of those little things that fly around around your compost um, container in your kitchen, right? Um, so to an entomologist, though, and I'm an entomologist, um, when we say fruit flies, we're talking about true fruit flies, which are tephritids. Um, and they're so much prettier, um, right? You can see my, my bug guyness coming out here. So it's a much bigger insect. Many of them have these pretty um, picture wings where they've got colors in their wings. Um, and I just really like them. Um, However, they are um, one of the worst horticultural pests that we have in the world. So this is not one species, but all taken together. Um, they are uh, the leading group of damaging our fruits and vegetables um, in the world. So I am a fruit and veggie kind of guy, particularly when it comes to the fruit. Um, and so um, you know, ways that we can control these, especially without pesticides, um, I'm particularly interested in. So, uh, most of the where I do my work is in the tropics and subtropics. Um, they're nice places to go to. There are um, some of these species, uh, tephritid species, that are in this area. So Jim and I are just starting a, uh, a project on the fly that's down here in the bottom. This is the apple maggot. Um, so if you like ap apples free of maggots, um, you want us to succeed at the project that we're working on at the moment. Um, the other ones that we have here, the two that you're going to see throughout this presentation at the top, the one over here on this side is the melon fly, um, and that's the one that I'm mostly going to be working on in Hawaii. I'll talk about some of the, the, the work that was done in Hawaii. And then on the other side, that's the Queensland fruit fly that is over, um, over Australia. Uh, the other two that are on here, medfly, um, that one is probably the biggest tephritid pest um, across the world. And then in the middle, um, oriental fruit fly, which some of the work that we did was on that oriental fruit fly. The other reason, um, uh, Fred talked about, you know, grant money, right? Uh, particularly when we're going to places like Hawaii, to Guam, to Australia, um, Indonesia, or the Philippines, right? You have to have money to be able to do this. And this is, again, back to grad school. Um, I had a professor that told me, you know, all things being equal, if you're going to choose an organism to work on, choose something that people will pay you to study. Um, and so I definitely took that to heart. Um, I feel like this is also something that I can kind of, it fits my like, save the world, and people will pay to me to work on it. I like it, right? Um, so um, there is definitely money in working on, uh, on tephritids because they are a huge threat to particularly California um, and Florida. Um, so almost everything that I do, when I think about like, why do we say that we're doing it? We're like, California, let's protect California or let's protect Florida. Um, even though maybe what I really want to do is I want to, you know, do another part of the project. That's kind of the headline thing. So money, people will give you money to work on these. All right. So how, what are the ways that we, um, that we control fruit flies? Um, they are a big pest, and we have been working on them for quite a while. So there are some pretty developed ways that we, um, uh, that we work on controlling them. So I want to start off, I'll get us to pesticides eventually. Pesticides are probably the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about controlling insects. Um, but I want to start us off with um, integrated pest management. So the idea with integrated pest management is that you treat your crop. Um, so generally, fruits and vegetables are what I'm talking about here. Um, so not so that you're killing every last pest out there. What you're trying to do is you're trying to drop the level of those pests below the economic threshold level. That is, make sure that I am not paying more money to treat these than I'm getting back um, from, uh, from selling my crop in the end. So it, it's this um, part of it is, uh, is about the economics of it. 
Um, but then the techniques that fall under uh, integrated pest management are basically try to you know, minimize the amount of pesticide that you're using. And let's bring in all of the things that we understand from biology about how do these pests live in the environment? How are they moving back and forth? How do they reproduce, right? And let's find weak spots in their life cycles and exploit those um, to control them. So it generally tends to be that um, if you're a nozzle head, right? So if you're one of those people that can just go spray pesticide, right? That's all you have to do. You can just spray pesticide um, and that's gonna kill your pest. When you do insect, um, uh, so integrated pest management, IPM, this is something where it is generally multiple techniques. We're gonna do a little of this and a little of this and a little of this and it tends to get complicated to be able to get that control. Um, it's also something that, like I said, it's very predicated on understanding your pest, um, so it's a place for biologists to be involved in this. So one of the things that we do, um, so what are, what are techniques that fit under IPM? Um, one of those is the sterile insect technique. Um, so the picture that I have up there is of a facility that is in Guatemala. Um, this is uh, one that is mostly funded by the U.S. Um, and this facility in Guatemala turns out um, somewhere between four and five billion sterile male flies every week. Why do they do that, right? So the idea here is that if you have a bunch of male flies that are sterile, so generally this is we've irradiated them so that they're sterile, you can release those into the wild and then they're shooting blanks um, when they mate with a female, and then the female is also shooting blanks when she lays eggs. Um, and so this is a technique that um, has worked fairly well. This facility in Guatemala, the idea there is they're trying to push um, one of the, the pest species back into South America. Um, also, they're trying to defend Texas and California, right? Make sure that it doesn't come further north. There's a similar facility that is in Hawaii, um, and they rear in the hundreds of millions of flies a week, um, and then they irradiate them, and they send them to California, and then those get dropped in California as a prophylactic measure, um, because you keep getting these fly species into California, and so any female that comes in, hopefully the first male that she's going to encounter is going to be a sterile male. So in the US, most of the way that we use this is actually not to straight up control them, but to make sure that they don't get a foothold. Um, and we spend a lot of money to support those programs just to make sure they don't get here to begin with, which kind of shows you how much we fear them coming to begin with. All right, um, pesticides, right? So if we do use pesticides, if we're thinking about IPM, right? So if we're thinking about trying to minimize um, uh, the pesticide use that we have, um, or if we're gonna use a pesticide, let's use something that has very low mammalian toxicity. So the compound, I, I, I promise I won't show too, too many chemical structures here, right? Uh, as a chemist, I'm like, I want to show you pictures, right? I think they're pretty, but I realize that people's eyes glaze over when I show too many. Um, so the structure down here is spinosad. Um, spinosad is a biopesticide. Um, it has very low mammalian toxicity. Um, so most of the people that handled it in our labs, they didn't even wear equipment when they would, uh, when they would handle it. Um, you can eat it and it's fine, right? Um, the issue with it in terms of using it with flies, it kills flies, great, but they have to ingest it. Um, so many pesticides, you can just spray them and contact and, you know, and kill them that way. So this is, again, a place for a biologist. I can get in there and I have to figure out what is it that makes a fly eat. Um, and if you can make that fly eat, um, then you can use spinosad. Um, and spinosad, so spinosad is one of the, the big ones that we use for flies. So if you're going to use a pesticide, let's use a pesticide that is not as, uh, as damaging. Um, exclusion zones um, kind of get used in two different ways. Uh, this is, I talked about flies coming into California. Flies come into California, um, we've got an area, one of the first things that they do is they throw in a quarantine and they say you can't move any fruit out of this area and they go in there and they just throw pesticide in um, and the farmers go ah because they can't move their fruit out of there but we do that to try to um, uh, keep the problem from getting worse. Um, in Australia, what they do, uh, and this is kind of going defunct at the moment, but they used to have an exclusion area in the southern part uh, of the country. Um, and when I lived there as a kid, I don't know if you can see this sign um, uh, particularly well, but we would, um, uh, if we would go down to, uh, uh, to Victoria or um, the southern parts of the state that we lived in, New South Wales, 
you would go into this fruit fly uh, free zone. And the idea was you weren't allowed to carry any fruit in there. Um, and I can remember one time that my mom had just like bought a whole bunch of apples. Um, and we get to the border and she was, you know, a good Mennonite. She was like, we are not going to waste these. We're going to get out of the car and we're going to eat them. And so after we had all eaten like three apples, we're like, mom, please. And she let us quit at that point, and we actually threw them away, which I think really hurt her to um, throw the fruit away. But they have this exclusion zone and really watch what moves in and out of there, um, and they're then able to export um, to other countries um, because they can certify that they don't have the pest there. And that's a lot of what the issues with this fly are. Is other countries don't want them, and they do not want your fruit coming in if there's the potential that you have, um, that you have fruit flies there. All right, so what I'm going to mostly talk about, um, uh, the, the technique that, that, that I'm working on with this project from, from ACR, um, is using what's called the area-wide um, pest management strategy. Uh, and the idea here is it's kind of like IPM. You're going to see that we use a bunch of different strategies. Um, but the thing, particularly about area-wide, is it's got a social component to it where we recognize that most of the people that are working on uh, their farming fruits are pretty small holders, um, especially um, uh, land, land holders. Like they're, they're in Hawaii, a lot of your growers are on five acres or less. Um, so small farms, um, and this is also something that happens uh, in Indonesia and the Philippines as well, tend to be um, uh, small fields. So what you do in your field um, and what your neighbor does, those two things really have to be together if you're really going to try to get control. And so when we do area-wide projects, the idea is that you're trying to get buy-in from all of the farmers that are in a particular area to all be doing the same kind of techniques um, and when you get everyone working together, um, you're much more effective in controlling the flies this way than if you just had individual people doing different things. Um, so in the same way that with integrated pest management, you're going to do lots of different techniques under that. We're going to have that with um, area-wide as well. And with that then, um, trapping, you're going to see, is a big piece of, of how, we get, um, uh, how we get control. Um, and trapping requires things that attract flies, hey, and that's where I come in as a chemist um, often, is finding out what are the chemicals that will attract them. So here's an example of when I first got to Hawaii as a postdoc, they were running an area-wide project for, um, uh, for fruit flies um, on the Big Island there, and they had these six components that they were using uh, to get farmers to try to help control the flies uh, in their field. So population monitoring. This is, again, the kind of things that I work on. We have a trap that's got an attractant in it. Um, that pulls in flies, and we know what the population is like. If there, aren't, uh, if there aren't flies out there, you don't need to be treating, right? So understand what's going on in your field. Field sanitation. Um, go and pick up your fruit that goes on the ground because oftentimes, so this is a cultural practice, um, if you leave it there, it's a reservoir for the next generation. Um, and so this works really well when like the price of papaya is high um, and everybody's picking all their papaya and sending it to, um, uh, to go off island. But if the price of papaya crashes, then oftentimes they're just going to let their fruit drop. Um, there's no reason to go pick it. And then all of a sudden, boom, you get an outbreak of flies. Um, so this is like trying to get people to buy into like, ah, we always have to keep the fruit off the ground um, because that's going to be a problem later if you don't deal with it now. Protein baits. This is going to come up in a, in a little while. This is part of the work that uh, Theo talked about um, previously, and I'm going to touch on it here again. Um, so uh, I talked about spinosad, right? How do we get flies to eat um, a toxicant? Um, if you take beer waste um, and you mix it with, um, uh, uh, with spinosad, which I want to be like, who came up with this idea? I can definitely see entomologists at a conference like, beer, beer is the answer. And we pour beer out and, we, oh, flies come into that. Oh, we got a toxicant that works with it. Um, I got to get to those conferences. That sounds like fun. Um, so anyways, um, so yes, uh, uh, protein baits. Um, these are ones that actually uh, a lot of, by understanding the biology of the flies, we actually know now that we really don't even need to spray these on the crops themselves because of realizing that the flies actually at the end of the day tend to move out of our crop fields and into cover areas around them. We can spray in those cover areas and never even spray our pesticide on the, um, on the fruit itself and get really good control. 
Um, so now you've got something that has low mammalian toxicity that you're not spraying on the fruit. This is a wonderful way if you've got to use a pesticide um, uh, that you can use it. Male annihilation. Ooh, that sounds a little nasty, doesn't it? Right. Um, so some of you are like, no, no, that sounds like a really good idea. Okay, this is flies, right? Um, so the problem here is that I said about like I'm uh, I'm all into figuring out chemicals that attract flies. Um, turns out we have some great molecules that attract male flies. Um, you put that out there and you can get your arm just like completely covered with male flies. They'll, they'll come into it. They love this stuff and not a female in sight. Um, if you really want to control a population though, killing males is okay, but really you want to kill females. Um, and unfortunately we can't do that. So we do the second, or, you know, we do the second best thing, which is kill as many males as we can. Um, and you can definitely, you can put out like um, a bucket, you know, trap um, some places on the big island. You can come back in a week um, and have that completely filled with, um, uh, with male flies. Um, works really well um, for killing males. It's not the thing that, that's ideal though. Sterile insects, I talked about that a little bit um, before. Um, and then parasitoid insects, um, rearing um, uh, insects which will go after um, our flies. So four of these things are things that the farmers can do, right? That kind of have to be done on the ground, if you look at the four on this side. Where um, sterile insects and parasitoids are generally things that you need a government agency to be involved in, um, or deep pockets in an industry to have the labs um, and the facilities to make this uh, to make this happen. So this was the project that was running um, when when I was uh, when I was postdocing. Um, so the project that I'm involved with now um, is uh, is one that is that is taking this technology, um, which has been you know, really first developed in Hawaii um, and then kind of following on in, um, in Australia um, and trying to take that and, uh, and push that out, and particularly in this project, to um, Indonesian farmers um, and, uh, and the Philippines. Um, so uh, ACR is uh, one of the ways that the Australian government does international aid, um, and I kind of like the way that they do it um, in that they tend to work with countries that are in their neighborhood. Um, and some of the projects, like this one, um, is one where they are helping the countries that are around them while also helping Australia. Um, and I feel like that is a, there's, a, there's a really nice um, component of that. So we talk to industry folks in Australia, and they're like, yeah, they're supporting what we're doing because we're having a value-added piece for them, um, as well as doing something for Australian neighbors. And I think you have, uh, you have more political support um, for these kind of programs when they're helping us as well as helping them. Um, so this particular project, um, I'm working with um, Stefano De Favri, who um, is a longtime collaborator of mine um, in Australia. I talked about passing money back and forth. Um, so this one is focused on mangoes. Um, I really wish that I, this was where I was supposed to spend um, my sabbatical um, if COVID, uh, right, so all of us can be like COVID, right, for the last, what, two years now. Um, but for me, that cost me um, spending a semester um, in Australia um, and eating mango the whole time. Oh, that would have been fun. Um, I really like uh, visiting Steph. Uh, I've been there a number of times. Um, and at the bottom then you see, um, these are pictures of uh, a number of our collaborators uh, in, uh, in Indonesia, um, and they have really nice mango there. I really would have loved to get to see the mango um, uh, that they were growing. So the project, in, um, uh, the project that, that we're running in Indonesia and the Philippines, um, there are five components um, that they're pushing with this, um, very similar to what I showed you about in Hawaii. So they're doing MAT, um, which is this, again, oh, it's my name, and it's male annihilation. That's just, ah, uh, um, I don't know. Um, MAT, uh, actually, mo most of the time they say M-A-T. Um, I don't know why, um, but yes. Um, so male annihilation is part of this. Um, there, they use these male lures um, and canid blocks, um, and you have got a pesticide that's in that. So they're not even trying to catch the flies. Um, you just kind of get a puddle of dead flies um, underneath where, um, puddle is the wrong word, um, graveyard, I don't know, whatever. Um, a bunch of dead flies that are underneath um, uh, these blocks that are out. Um, the other big component is the protein baiting. Um, so they have a, uh, a local protein source. Um, so these are often, 
they are places that brew beer um, or some place that has the capacity to do fermentation. Um, and then that's the protein source that they use. They put a, um, uh, they put a uh, pesticide in with that. Um, it's great if it's spinosad, something that, that is less toxic. Um, and then that gets sprayed. Uh, so those two, mat and um, uh, the protein baiting, are probably the most important parts of this. Sanitation, monitoring, and mapping are the other components. And they have done a great job with this project. This is actually the second project that Steph has been running um, in Indonesia. And in these areas, they've been able to bring their pest fly populations down by like a, a thousand fold. Um, so it has worked really well um, on that side of things in, in just being able to suppress the pest populations, as well as then at the same time reducing the amount of pesticide that you use. Because a, a lot of these places you see that um, uh, the farmers are pulling a whole bunch of different pesticides um, and not really timing their applications and uh, in using multiple pesticides can actually be um, harmful to them in terms of not just their health effects, obviously, but even killing beneficial insects. Um, uh, if you're using pesticides willy-nilly, that is not a good thing. Um, and so that's one of the things they've also been able to reduce um, through this project. Okay, so I said, um, I really wish that I was in Australia um, to do this, but I was not. Um, because of COVID, um, Australia is the last people they're letting in are Americans at this point. <laughs> um, uh, you really just need to be a, unless you're very wealthy or famous um, or an athlete, um, then maybe they'll let you in. And I am none of those things. Um, I asked if we could get like a dispensation through like the, you know, the, age, the, the, the folks in the one agency, then they were like, no, um, you have to be like the minister. And even then they probably get like one person in. So like you can't get into Australia at the moment. So um, most of the folks that are on this project are on the other side of the world. And I'm the only person in North America. So whenever we would do meetings, which this was probably, uh, I probably had about a week of meetings all told um, with this group. They were always in the middle of the night here. Um, so I don't know if you could see very well from, from that picture, but it, there is no outside light of me coming in there. It is the middle of the night. Um, this was our uh, big review meeting that, that we had um, halfway through this project. Uh, this is about half the people that were, that were at the meeting. Um, so we have um, researchers in here who are, who are biologists. We have folks that are working on um, the economics of this project, looking at, um, we have social scientists that are involved. And this is one of the things that I really learned from being involved in this project, um, was all the facets of making something like this work and be sustainable in the long term. Because as a scientist, I'm like, there's a problem to solve, right? And if I come up with the molecule that is going to catch the flies, like, problem done, right? Um, and it was really interesting to be in these bigger meetings and hear from the economists that are saying, no, 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 you know, we have supply chain issues. Um, like if our farmers have better looking fruit, less pesticides on them, you know, it is just better all around, but the middleman doesn't care, which is generally what happens there. It's just like load up the truck and they don't care what it looks like. They're just going to sort it afterwards. You have to convince the middleman that no, 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 we have given you a much better product. And so we ought to be able to be, you know, getting, we ought to be able to monetize that coming out the other end. And I was like, I didn't think about that at all, right? Um, because there are generally some added costs to doing um, uh, uh, treatment the way that, or controlling the flies um, the way we are here. Um, part of this is buying uh, the, the inputs. Um, there is more labor if you're going to be doing sanitation, right? So it does cost the farmers more. How do you get them to do that? They better be getting a better price. Um, thinking about where these things are getting sold, whether they're getting sold in local markets, whether they're um, being sent offshore. Um, thinking about, I think they do a fairly good job of thinking about who's making decisions. Um, a lot of the, uh, the people who were doing the extension out, out talking to farmers um, were talking to the women um, that were involved because they're often the ones that are making the, the, the financial decisions for the families. Um, and there were, there were just, there was a, a whole, a whole series of things. Politics. Um, many of the folks, a couple of the folks that are on here um, work with, um, in the government agencies. Um, and a lot of this then was when Australia pulls back the money that they've got into these, pro these projects, are there going, is there going to be government money to support um, making sure
or that there is a local protein um, bait source um, that they can use? Um, are there going to, is there going to be extension support to go help the farmers? Um, and so the researchers here have to run that up the chain of command in their government structure um, and try to be advocating for these sort of things. Anyways, it was, it was really interesting to be part of these calls. I mean, I hated being in the middle of the night, um, and I really wished I could be there. But I, I felt like I learned a lot um, from, uh, from being part of this. OK. so. Moving to the science. Um, so what could have been, right? Um, I really wanted to spend uh, uh, the, the last half of, uh, or the first half of, of this year um, in Mariba, um, which is in far north Queensland. Um, it is in the Tablelands above Cairns. You may have heard of Cairns before. Um, beautiful, it's on the Great Barrier Reef um, between Cairns and Mariba is all World Heritage Area. It's a uh, rainforest, it's beautiful. Like I said, they have lots of mango, um, uh, but I wasn't. Um, so this is a picture of uh, a previous trip that I was there. That's Steph and Jody, um, who is his technician who does a lot of the work uh, in the field there. So my backup plan then um, was Hawaii, which I think you guys are all like, oh, right? I, I really like having this as a backup plan. It was kind of nice. The USDA folks, when they found out that I wasn't going to Australia, they were like, we have money for you. Come here. And I was like, yes. Um, so initially, I was there um, for about seven weeks um, at the end of last year. And I was able to take my family along with me, which was great. Um, and then uh, back um, for about five weeks, was it? Is that what we were? Um, I think I was there for six weeks. Theo was there for five Five weeks, uh, Nicole. So I had two students um, who are shown here um, outside of the USDA facility. And what we were doing was we were working on the projects that we wanted to be doing in Australia, um, but we couldn't do we couldn't get into Australia to do it. So we were doing them in Hawaii on species that were similar. Um, so we used them as model systems um, to do the work. All right. So. The science. Um, so the three projects. The first of the three projects that we were working on um, was developing um, a new mail lore. Uh, so this is not the best way to do this, right? So as I've already said the thing that we would really like to be able to do would be to catch females um, straight up. Um, but we have these good mail lores, um, and we are still trying to make those better. So the molecule, I think this is the only other chemical structure that I'll show during this. So this is um, uh, a molecule that um, I first made um, when I was a postdoc. Um, so this is raspberry ketone trifluoroacetate. Um, those of you who are inorganic currently, right, or have had organic, um, the, the fluoroac trifluoroacetate that is here on the bottom, if you cut that off and you just have an alcohol there, that's raspberry ketone. Um, and raspberry ketone is probably the natural molecule that the flies are attracted to. Uh, it's actually a um, metabolism stimulant for us, too. So if you go online and buy raspberry ketone, it's in a lot of supplements that um, you know, say that they're going to make you um, thin and beautiful, I guess. Um, so uh, male flies love that. Um, this modification to the molecule makes the, the molecule much more volatile. It actually makes it a lot more attractive. We've published a number of papers on this. Um, but the problem is that it doesn't last very long in the environment. Um, so this data here on the, uh, on the right side um, shows at the top the first six hours of us having these lures out. Um, and so the raspberry ketone trifluoroacetate, um, we call it raspberry tea for short. Raspberry tea catches a lot more than Q-lore. Q-lore is the, the standard lure that is used for control now. So we've got something that's twice as good, right, as what we use currently. But unfortunately, it burns out, right? So the remainder of the day then, oh, it's almost all gone. Um, so what we've been trying to do with this project is to um, find materials that would stop hydrolysis. Um, it's as this molecule falls apart that it loses its attractancy. So I think I have now have I've had three generations of students work on this project with me, um, trying to working on different elements of, of figuring out materials that would allow the release of raspberry ketone trifluoroacetate um, without uh, letting it hydrolyze. So we have put it into all kinds of things. We've tried all kinds of different um, plastics, um, and we came up with um, a. Uh, uh, polyethylene bag um, that has carbon black impregnated into it. And this is, if you've ever gotten uh, like an electronics board, um, they, it might have come in this kind of plastic. So it's like anti-static. Um, it does a really good job of uh, preventing hydrolysis for us. Um, 
data from 2019, data from 2020. So this is uh, when I was over at the end of 2020, realizing I'm going to need to go a little faster, so I'm going to pick this up. Um, we were, uh, it's not great, um, is the take home here. Um, RT, this is raspberry T in both cases, it's not doing as well as, um, as the QLOR. Um, this is the work that was done in Australia. So um, one of the things that we do here at EMU is we synthesize the material and we send it other places to get worked on. So EMU students made the material here, we sent it to Australia. And the thing I want to draw your attention to here is RT on thick. Um, that is, that is the, the bag that we came up with that, that, um, uh, that does the best job in the field. And then Q thick over here is that same bag with Q lore, which is the standard lore that everyone else is using. And notice we lose. Um, we can make it last longer, but we're not better than the lore that's out there. So this is actually getting us off on a sad note. This is a project that I've been working on for about mm, 15 almost 20 years. Um, and I think we have decided now that we're going to put it to bed. <laughs> um, uh, unfortunately, it is a superior molecule, but we can't get it to work in the field. Um, so this is maybe a lesson in science, right? You could work at something for a really long time and in the end still fail with it, um, which is what we have here. Although, I will say, um, if you look at all of the Q things there, all the ones that, say, that are Q lore, the best one is this matrix that we've um, discovered here. So it might be something that the plastic that we discovered is more important than the molecule um, uh, that we're working with. Okay, um, to something that Theo talked to uh, about last week. Uh, so this is work um, that Theo started here um, at, uh, at EMU, um, and then we carried on uh, working in, uh, in Hawaii on this summer. Uh, so this is well and truly, these first two projects were ones that were funded by ACR. The last one was directly funded by the Australian government. Um, so protein lores, these are the ones that's, that come from the beer waste, right? Um, and these are ones that we can put a toxic in, in and, and we can use. They're one of the great um, uh, control techniques that we have. So they're basically a food attractant. Um, so the flies like to come to them because they need protein sources. Um, the nice thing about this is that both males and females come to, um, to these lores. So it's potentially a way that you can really affect the entire population. Um, problematic with it is they tend to be weak. Um, weak attractants, they're not pulling in a whole lot of flies, so we really wish we could jazz them up. Um, they tend to be phytotoxic, so if you spray them on mangoes, this is particularly why Steph, um, our collaborator in Australia, wanted to work on these. You spray them on mango and the mango looks horrible afterwards. Um, it still tastes great. Um, I am uh, definitely willing to eat mango that looks like this, but it just doesn't look good, um, and so you can't sell it as well. Um, the protein tends to spoil um, if you leave it out in the field for a while. Um, so we're trying to figure out, um, can we figure out what actually it just attracts the flies as opposed to using the natural material itself? And this has been done before. BioLore is a, a lore that's been developed for medfly. Um, and we are looking at developing one for um, the flies that are a problem in Australia, Queensland fruit fly. We think we can optimize it for fly um, species and that there might be a number of ways that we can, uh, we can use it. So really quickly, um, the, the, the research, the method that we did, um, so Theo um, used a number of ways to grab the odors um, from uh, a whole suite of protein lures that we had sent to us from Australia. Um, then we used a GC mass spec to figure out what those volatiles were that were coming off of these, um, uh, these different protein lures. Uh, and then we take them to Australia, uh, all the different compounds that we have, and we tested them individually to begin with in a rotating olfactometer, which is this outdoor screen cage, these arms that go round and round and round. Um, we hang these McPhail traps, these glass traps in there, and we put different compounds in them. So um, the little picture is Lori here, or Lori might be on the, uh, I don't know, if she, this was, we realized after we put this picture up there that we're doing really well with gloves, but neither one of us have glasses on, which we really should have, so right? Um, so you're allowed to be like, no, Matt, you should have had glasses on, right? So um, it took a really long time to get these out. And I think Theo made this point um, uh, as well with this, that um, getting all of these uh, treatments together and out uh, to, do the, uh, to do the tests was a lot of work. Thank you, Theo, um, uh, for working on this. 
So um, I'm not going to show you the entirety of the data from this. What we did was we tried each compound individually, um, and then we're putting them together into blends to see what's the most attractive. And our kind of our guiding idea here is that we know that different flies are attracted to different protein sources. And so we can look at the compounds that are there in each of these um, and then uh, try to figure out what's most attractive to, to a particular fly. So data from this. Um, here we see, this is, like I said, we had lots and lots of data that came from this. This is kind of the end stages. Uh, there were a couple of classes of molecule that we found that were very attractive. Um, so particularly alkylpyrazine. So we have two of them on here, 2,5-dimethylpyrazine, um, 2,6-dimethylpyrazine. The thing that was really interesting about these two, and I, I think we're probably going to get a paper out of just this result by itself, um, if you look at them, so the blue here is the number of males that you catch. Um, the orange is the number of females. And notice the difference between those two compounds over here on the left. One is male biased, um, and the other one is female biased. Um, I wish it was the other way round in that the one that catches more was actually female biased because that's what we're looking for. Um, but just that we get this much difference in trap, and we saw this over and over again in, in, um, uh, in all of the trials that we ran. Um, and if you look, those two molecules are up there. The only difference between them is just whether that methyl group is up or down. Um, and so Tara's not surprised by this, right? Because she knows with drugs that you know little changes make a huge difference. Um, same thing for the insects. Really small changes um, give us very different um, responses. So this is something that um, at this point we've done the testing in in, in Hawaii, and we've passed that off um, for now the field work to be done um, in uh, in Australia. So. I really wish we could have pushed it out into the field into Hawaii, but we didn't get that far. Last project then, um, and then I'll stop for some, uh, see if there, are, if there are questions. So this is um, a project that is uh, very similar to the one that Theo talked about before and the one that I just talked about with, uh, with a protein lore, where we're, most of what we did um, uh, this year was we took compounds, put them into a rotating olfactometer, and figure out how many flies we catch from that. So in this case, um, we're trying to improve uh, a lore that I came up again with in, um, uh, when I was postdocing. It comes from cucumber. Um, we knew that cucumbers were really attractive to um, melon fly. Uh, so this is one of the flies that they have in Hawaii. And so we took the cucumber, we mashed it up, we figured out what the chemicals are in there. Um, we used the flies. You can use their heads um, to do electrophysiology. Flies smell with their antennae. Um, so we can use their antennae and read what they're smelling. Um, and this helps us figure out what they're attracted to. Um, we came up with nine compounds um, that attract flies. It works great um, in the field um, in, uh, in Australia, or sorry, in, in Hawaii. Yay, big success. Um, a number of years later, um, my colleagues in Australia picked this up, and they did it with one of their fly species. Um, and importantly, that fly species didn't have any other attractant that really worked well for it. Um, so it's called the cucumber fly, um, very closely related to the melon fly that we have. Um, but that lore has never been optimized for the Australian species. Um, so what we were trying to do with this is we were doing a bunch of what are called subtraction bioassays, where you start taking out um, a series of compounds and look to see where do you lose the attraction. Um, and again, we're doing it in a model species in Hawaii. So our results really were not particularly in, um, uh, helpful in that uh, almost everything that we removed as a single compound, um, it would reduce the effectiveness. Oh, no, sorry. When we removed one compound, it wouldn't um, affect uh, the, the, the attraction. But we, when we would take out two, we would. Um, and the work that has been done in Australia already, they already had two compounds out of the nine um, that I had originally done. So this was not um, as, uh, uh, as we did not get the result that I, that I was hoping for out of this. Um, but really, the work needs to be done in Australia. Um, so a lot of uh, what I've done then is to be on the horn with the folks in Australia and be um, guiding what is happening there. Um, I would have liked to be there in person. Might have been a better way to do it. Um, but it is, uh, it is what it is. OK, um, let me finish with this then. Um, some, you know, where, where we are going forward. Um, so obviously, 
in good times, um, the way that this research get, gets done is very collaborative. Um, so uh, in a lot of cases, we make molecules here at EMU that go to folks in Hawaii to test um, or go to Australia to test. And it is very much a back and forth things. Um, and the collaboration is huge. Now, even more than ever with COVID, right, where we're not actually going back and forth. Um, so I end up spending a lot of time um, on Zoom, or I don't know if you've used Marco Polo, um, where you can do this asynchronously. So um, most mornings, I have a message from a technician in Australia saying, this didn't work. Um, and so I talk into my phone for a while. And of course, it would be waking her up if she was getting it right then. But she can come back to it and look at it later um, and go back and forth that way. Um, so collaborations continue to work on that. Um, and notice that several of these projects are things that the testing now needs to be done in Australia. Um, logistics is a big thing that we continue to, to work on. So I shipped one of our GCs from EMU and all of our electrophysio uh, electrophysiology equipment. That's a tough one to say. Uh, can you guys say that? Electrophysiology equipment? Hey, you do much better. You should like, hey, yeah, well done, right? Ah, maybe, maybe it's because I've been talking for about an hour and I really should quit. Thank you, Luke. Um, so um, all that got shipped to Australia and I was like, ah, and now it is there and I am not there to set it up. So half of those conversations that go back and forth are about how to set this equipment up while I'm not there. It's, it's a little nerve wracking. Um, uh, we continue to, to make a number of things, both radio tags um, and uh, chemicals, which get sent other places to do research. Um, and yeah, uh, I didn't get to Australia, so a lot of the time that I spent here was in my basement. Um, and so that was things like data crunching, writing, Zoom, Marco Polo. Um, and that's actually a lot of what I'll, go f I'll be doing going forward on these projects um, uh, to push them forward, hopefully, to, uh, to getting some things that work in the field. All right, um, before I leave you, my teaser um, pictures here on the bottom are about the other project um, uh, that I'll talk about in November, um, which was radio tracking flies. Um, so these guys are little. Um, imagine being able to track them around in the environment. Um, that is something that Theo, Nicole, and I were able to pull off um, this summer. Um, and there were some really interesting pieces of that. Here are my thank yous. Um, to, um, like I said, three generations of EMU students who have been involved in uh, particularly working on the, uh, the Raspberry T project. Um, DAF um, are, is the Department of Agriculture and Forestry um, in Australia. Um, USDA folks helping in Hawaii, ACR for funding, and Australian federal government also um, kicked in uh, money to support this. So, I think I will stop there um, and see if there are questions that come from you guys. And do we have a mic that we can wander around with that? I see Esther's up first. Would you, uh, so for, for example, the um, mangoes in Australia, yeah. would you do that? Just use the mangoes there and, and get that uh, uh, molecules. Just basically, where is your starting point? Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so I think the, the question here for those just repeating for the, um, for the recording um, that I was showing the, for the, the cucumber project, um, our starting point for the, for the attractants that we're looking for were from um, a, natural, a natural source. Um, and, uh, and, and I think your, your question here was, we're working in mango, uh, maybe why aren't we starting with mango as the thing for the, for the attractant? Um, yeah, and that's, um, and so we notice we are kind of doing that with the protein, um, that we're, we're starting with a natural material and we're trying to figure out what the compounds in there that are, are attractive. Um, I believe that some of that work has been done with mango. Um, mango, uh, some of these flies are, are very generalist. Um, so they go to lots of things. Um, and so uh, chemical ecologists, or the people that, that do what I do, um, have gone after a number of different uh, natural materials that might attract flies. Um, but with a generalist insect, when it goes to a bunch of things, we want to try to figure out what is the thing that it likes the very most, right? Um, so I might eat Burger King, and I might eat McDonald's, but what I really want is a steak, right? Um, and so let's figure out what's in the steak 
and then maybe not, and so the focus there. So I have seen some folks work on Mango, um, but for the pests that we're working on, it's not necessarily the thing that they like the most. Um, and so even with the work that we've done on, um, on cucumber, um, I just saw a paper this week that um, folks have found um, another um, cucurbit, which is in the same family, that attracts the flies more than cucumber. Um, and they're working at trying to figure out what's in there um, that's not in the cucumber. Um, so there definitely is a huge piece that's there on the front end trying to figure out the biology before, we get in, before I get involved as a chemist and try to go after and figure out what that, um, what's the most attractive. I'm not sure if that answered your question or not. Thank you. OK, cool. Others? Are there any negative effects of killing the flies? Of? Killing flies. Killing flies? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so this is, yeah, so thinking about like ecological um, potentially or, yeah, or, or other things that, about this. So in, in places like Hawaii, um, they are, they're all invasive. So we have now five, try that again, see if I can count, right? Five species um, of, of tephritted fruit flies um, in Hawaii, and they are all ones that have come in from the outside. Um, so there really isn't, um, uh, there isn't like an ecological reason for us not to be um, uh, taking them out. Um, are, they, uh, are they potentially going to be, are they fed on by other things? Sure. Um, and as, as, you know, ecosystems have evolved, um, you know, are they something that is a, um, a food source? Yeah. I would say more the, the issue is like, is like how we kill them. Um, so we definitely think, uh, so, so Theo can talk to the, uh, uh, the different trophic levels here. Um, so we were doing, we were doing fly tracking. I've already kind of given that away. And even in the tests that we were doing, we had, um, uh, we had, uh, little lizards that came and ate flies that had our trackers on them. And then we could actually track the little lizards around because they had eaten them. It was not what we were trying to do, right? But that's the sort of thing to think about how we're killing the flies. Um, and if we are killing them with a pesticide that is going to bioaccumulate, then that is something that goes up, um, you know, through the food chain. Um, so one of those, you know, another one of those reasons to be thinking about what we use to um, what we use to kill them. Um, I haven't I haven't thought about that in terms of. Um, areas where the flies are native. And this is one of the really cool things to be working in Indonesia. Um, they have so many more fly species than we do, and, and they're endemic. Um, and so there's, uh, yeah, there is this issue of, um, are you going to take out native species, potentially? But part of what I would say there is, what we need to do is we need to do a better job of agriculture so that we're not expanding into more of those wild areas, because probably, the endemic species are in those wild areas. They're not in the ag areas, um, uh, where it still tends to be pretty monocrop. Um, and then you have uh, just a, a few species of pests that are in there. So I like, thanks, thanks, Jesse. I see Esther's got another one. Yeah, I don't see anybody else with their hand up, so. <laughs> Sorry about it. Another question I have is that uh, seems like uh, I could be wrong. Uh, you just uh, create these uh, mo molecules or, or chemicals and to see uh, if it, they are attractive to female or male. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, just get it out and try. And I, I wonder if there's uh, knowledge from biology where the olfactory system is different uh, for a female that you can targeted than just the random it's just go get out and try yeah yeah, uh, yeah this, uh, oh yeah yeah so this is this is a great question um, so um, this is one of those things that that back in the day so the way that a lot of these uh, the the male attractants that we have that we that we now know um, came from what I think of as just shelf shaking let's just go and throw as many things out there as we can and see what gets attracted but then very quickly before we could even like map receptors or do a lot of the things that we can do now 
um, there were chemists that were making little changes to those molecules and thinking about what must the receptor site look like because of the response that we get from the different molecules. Um, and where we are now is that we do have more of this you know, receptor mapping um, that could be done. Um, and from that, then yeah, can we, I, it's not mature in this field. Um, we're not using it to the extent that, that, that I think we could. Um, but that kind of thing about understanding what's happening on the receptor level and then having a molecule that matches that, that's potentially, um, uh, I think that, that that is a way that we could go forward. Yeah, and then male-female, what does that receptor look like on the male versus what's there on the female? Um, yeah. And this is, there, there are all kinds of interesting things that happen with their biology here too. Um, this is a species where it tends to be that the males attract the females, um, but then why do males come into, well, it ends up being that the things that they like are precursors to their pheromones. Um, but then the pheromones aren't nearly as strong as the thing that attracts the males. It, there's some weird biology that goes into it. Are there any last burning questions? I think we are about at time. All right.